How many are happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Can you say amen? Amen. Good to see you here today. What a wonderful day it is to be alive. What a wonderful day it is to be gathered as the people of God. I have a word for you today. Uh, continuing our Kingdom First series. Last Sunday, my wife preached a marvelous word on Kingdom First family, what it is to have a Kingdom First family. And today we're going to talk about Kingdom First culture. We can just turn those monitors off completely. The problem's the monitors. Yeah, today we're going to talk about having a Kingdom First culture, what it means to have a Kingdom First culture. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. We thank you that you are with us in this place, and we pray, Father, that as we open our hearts to you, that you would speak to us by the power of your word and spirit, that you would grant us wisdom and understanding to understand the good pleasure of your will. We pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I want to talk to you about having a kingdom-first culture that is exalting the kingdom of God above human culture. Now this is uh, the third installment of this series. Uh, The first installment we talked about what it means to be a kingdom first Christian, which means to exalt the kingdom of God above our individual preferences, above personal ambition, above selfishness, above even personal needs, kingdom first. Then in the second week we talked about what it means to be a kingdom first community, That is, a kingdom-first church. We talked about exalting the kingdom of God even above the local church. Otherwise, we we will become a community that's collapsed in upon itself. A self-centered community is just as bad as a self-centered individual. But a community that exalts the kingdom of God above itself is the best kind of community. Just as an individual who exalts the kingdom of God above himself or herself is the best kind of individual. And last Sunday, my wife talked about Kingdom First family. And she showed us that having a Kingdom First family is the best kind of family. What we are seeing in each of these installments is the understanding that there's really only two types of individuals. There are worshipers and there are idolaters. You are either a worshiper or you are an idolater. You either worship God or you worship a false god. But all of us worship something. To be human means to worship something. Even if you say, I don't worship anything, I only do what I want to do, then you are a worshiper of self. But you're still an idolater. Now when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that's the first step of coming out of our idolatry. However, for the rest of our lives as we grow as disciples in Jesus Christ, there's the process of the kingdom of God rubbing up against the kingdom of self, rubbing up against the kingdom of the world, and even rubbing up against the kingdom of darkness that has long resided in our hearts and minds. And sanctification and discipleship is the process by which, through the power of the Holy Spirit, for the rest of our lives, we recognize and shake free of different levels of idolatry. Because in each and every one of our lives and hearts, regardless of how deeply we have known Jesus and how long we have walked with Him, there's still areas in which we don't yet fully trust the Lord. Still areas in which we have not yet fully submitted to the Lord. Still areas in which we do not fully belong to God. And there are lingering areas of idolatry in our lives in which we put something, anything, above God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, that the sacrifices that pagans make to idols, they actually make to demons, meaning any place of idolatry in our lives is actually a place in which there is a demonic stronghold that needs to be broken over our lives. Now, what does this have to do with culture? This has everything to do with culture. Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he taught us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, what he actually taught them to pray was, your culture come. Let me explain what I mean by that. The definition of a culture is the integrated patterns, the integrated pattern of knowledge, beliefs, values, norms, and behaviors that are characteristic of a people group. Culture is defined 
as the integrated pattern of knowledge, beliefs, values, norms, and behaviors characteristic of a people group. The culture of heaven is the integrated pattern of knowledge, beliefs, values, norms, and behaviors that are characteristic of heaven. So if you could go to heaven and you saw how the heavenly community interacts, what they know, what they believe, what they value, what is normal, and how they behave, that is the culture of heaven. When Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he was talking about the culture of heaven coming to earth. So that the mission of God is the culture of heaven on earth. But the mission of hell is the culture of hell on earth. So that if you could go to hell and see how that community functions, there is an integrated pattern of knowledge, beliefs, values, norms, and behaviors that are characteristic of that community. And the mission of hell is on earth as it is in hell. The mission of heaven is on earth as it is in heaven, which means that earth is a cultural battleground. And so Jesus says to pray, your culture come. When the culture of heaven comes to earth, then what is known in heaven is known on earth. What is believed in heaven is believed on earth. What is valued in heaven is valued on earth. What is normal in heaven is normal on earth. And what is done on he- in heaven is done on earth. When we begin to know as the Father knows, that's the culture of heaven. When we begin to believe as the Father believes, that's the culture of heaven. When we begin to value what the Father values, that's the culture of heaven. And when what is normal to us is normal in heaven, that's the value, that's the culture of heaven. And when what is done in heaven is done by us, that is the culture of heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is the culture of heaven. Now the Bible tells us that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're a stranger in the world. An alien, actually, in the world. But you're a citizen of heaven. If you are a citizen of heaven, that means that the culture of heaven should be your native culture. And if you are a stranger in the world, the culture of earth should be foreign to you. But why is it that whenever something heavenly happens, we all freak out? If somebody gets free from a demon, we had on the Emeryville side a few weeks ago, somebody manifested a demon, they had to cast the demon out of it right there in the service. If that happened here, it would freak half of you out. (laughs) Just freak you out. What in the world? This is some strange stuff. And and you would go home talking about that church. That's a strange church. Some strange people over there. When you hear people speaking in tongues, you know what we do in churches? We tell people, don't speak in tongues. Because you'll weird out the visitors and you don't want anybody to think we're weird. You know what's crazy to me is honestly, when I talk to people who visit our services who don't actually know Jesus and don't have any, actually have any interaction and they hear people speaking in tongues, they don't think it's weird. They go, wow, that was kind of cool. I mean, I don't know what it means or what that is, but you know who it weirds out? It weirds out religious believers. We're actually not worried about unbelievers. We're worried about legalistic believers. They didn't do that at my church. And there's no prohibition in Scripture that tells us to be gentle to legalistic believers (laughs) or to create an atmosphere that's comfortable for legalistic believers. Right? But when Paul talks about speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he defines it as the language of angels. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, when he talks about speaking the language of angels, isn't that the culture of heaven? That should just be normal. Prophecy should be normal to us. The gifts, when people get healed, it should be normal for people to get healed. That's the culture of heaven. 
It's, when, when somebody gets healed, we're like, wow, that shouldn't be a wow. That should be a, yeah, of course, God is here. That's what God does. That's how he do. That's, that's how he be rolling. That's what he do. <laughs> that's just his culture. In his presence, there is healing. That's, that's who he is. It's not, it's not even what he does. It's just who he is. You get around him, you get healed, and you don't even know why you got healed. Say, so somebody got the gift of healing. Yeah, God has the gift of healing. But we go out in the world and, and we see the degradation and we see the perversion and we go, oh yeah, that's normal. And we're not moved by it and we're not grieved by it. It's just, that's just the normal thing. It's just, you know, that's how they do out, you know. It's just, it's just the world. It should be strange to us. We should be like, we need heaven up in this place. Now, the thing that we need to understand is that the pressure to be conformed to the pattern of this world is a pressure that every single one of us faces. Paul said it in Romans chapter 12, first verse 1. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. The thing we must understand is there's actually three cultures. There's divine culture, which is the culture of heaven. Jesus calls that culture the kingdom of heaven. Then there's demonic culture, which is the culture of hell. That's called the kingdom of darkness. But then there's human culture, which is neither positive nor negative. It's neutral. There's Tongan culture. There's Korean culture. There's Japanese culture. There's American culture. There's, there's uh, a Nigerian culture. There's uh, Thai culture. There's, there's all kinds of different human cultures, and they're neutral. They're neither good nor evil. However, human culture is the battleground because hell is always trying to grab human culture and pull it just a little closer to hell. And heaven is also trying to grab human culture and put it a little, bring it a little closer to heaven. And the problem that we have in the church is that we have confused these three cultures to the extent that in the past, especially in the 1900s, in the mid-1900s, we actually confused the culture of heaven with American culture. So that if you're really saved, you need to cut your hair short if you're a guy. To have long hair, like Jason back there, he, he's not really saved yet. He's, he might have said the prayer, but he's not sanctified yet. All them dreadlocks and all that stuff. You need to cut that, bro. You need to get right with Jesus and cut your hair. I see these young ladies walking around wearing pants. In the mid-50s, you know, the mid-1900s, that was anathema. If you wore pants... You're dressed like a man. That's unholy and ungodly. That's called legalism. That's called religion. It actually has nothing to do with the neutral components of human culture. That's why we don't have a dress code. I grew up in a church where you had, you had to wear your best suit and tie to church every Sunday. As a matter of fact, the church I grew up in, I, I kid you not, uh, every time somebody would come visit the church, and if it was a young lady... And if she, if she was just a little bit above the knee on her skirt or her dress, if it was just a little bit above the knee, I kid you not, they would put a choir robe on her and sit her up in the balcony. It's called legalism. It's called religion. And the essence of empty religion is rules without relationship. There are rules in the Christian faith. There are commands. But it has nothing to do with the neutral components of human culture. The Euro-American missionaries in the mid-1900s made the mistake of going to different nations around the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they thought that they, the goal was to Americanize. And so that's why when you go to Ghana, for instance, I remember going to Ghana the first time in 1999 and going to the Presbyterian churches in Ghana and, and other churches in Ghana, and they're dressed like Europeans. Because they taught them that you've got to come out of the kingdom of darkness and stop wearing African clothing because African clothing is inherently demonic. But European clothing is inherently godly and righteous. It's a misconception. It's wrong. It's a lie. It's a deception to think that you're more godly if you dress a certain way. When God is not looking at the outward appearance, He's looking at the heart. He's not looking at how long or how short your hair is. He's looking at your heart. However, there are commands of God. 
that we would do well to obey, but we must understand the nature of the commands of God. See, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and this guy is not really walking with the Lord. And by the way, I love talking to people who are not walking with the Lord. I love it. And the worst thing that we can do as believers is try to conform people's behavior before there's a transformation of their heart. If you're talking to some, listen, if you're here and you don't know Jesus today, I want you to know that you are not required to change yourself to come here. You're not required to put on a Christian suit. You're not required to act like you, you know, you're a real worshiper and lift your hands because that's what everybody, you're not required to lift your hands. You're not, this guy was saying, I'm I'm smoking a cigarette. I I know you don't want to be around me while I'm smoking. I said, no, no, smoke as much as you want. I'm not trying to conform your behavior. I'm reaching for your heart. And often we miss people's hearts because we try to conform their behavior. But behavior, let me tell you how behavioral transformation works in the kingdom of God. Jesus described the kingdom of heaven as a man who found a treasure in a field. And Jesus said when he found it, he buried it again. And in his joy, he went out and sold everything he had and came back and bought that field. Transforming people's behavior without transforming their heart is like asking them to buy the field when they haven't found the treasure in it. Everything that I have to give up to walk with Jesus, I give it up because I found a treasure in the field that's more valuable than anything that I had. Literally, the man found the treasure in the field and he saw that the treasure was so valuable that even though I have to give up everything, it's worth more than my everything. And if you're looking, if you're afraid to come to Christ because you're worried about what you have to give up, you just haven't found the treasure yet. Because once you find the treasure, nothing is valuable anymore outside of it. I, I hear people, you know, people talk all the time, say, you know, I mean, just to keep it real, you know, people are like, I don't know about coming to Jesus, you know, because, you know, you got to give up, you know, like having sex with people who are not your wife or your husband. And I like my freedom, you know, I'm still out there sewing. And so people say, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready. You know, I'm still sewing my, gotta, you know, have my fun. You know, I'm doing my thing. You know what I'm talking about? I just have my fun. I, you know, you know what I'm talking about? I just, I'm, I'm just not ready. I'm just, I'm just not ready. I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready. Can I tell you the truth? You will never be ready. What, you think you're going to be ready in a month? You think you're going to wake up a month from now and say, okay, I've had enough sex. <laughs> has there been anyone on earth who has ever woke up? and <laughs> You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, okay, I've had enough. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm ready to serve Jesus now because I'm good. Wow. No, you will never be good. Yep. Never. But when you find the treasure... When you find the treasure, when you find the goodness of God, when you find the love of Jesus Christ, the response in your heart is, this is better than sex. All of a sudden, you make a decision in your heart and mind, you know what, I'll contextualize that. I'll put it within the context that God ordained for me to have it. And that's in a married relationship between a man and a woman. That that is what God gave me. That is what God gave me in the scriptures. And so I'm going to leave it in that context. Why? Because the treasure is too good. When you find the treasure, you will not allow anything to keep you from the treasure. Nothing. Nothing. And if you still feel a sense of loss at the thought of giving up something, it simply means that you haven't yet found the treasure. And that thing is actually an idol. You're still worshiping that thing. Jesus says in our core scripture that this whole series is based upon in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 through 33. He says, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? When Jesus talks about eating, drinking, and wearing, he's talking about the basics of human need. And all of us have this tendency to think about, to worry about, and to set our affections upon 
what we need. That is, we are biologically hardwired to focus our attention upon ourselves, our needs, our wants, and our desires. But Jesus says to his disciples, you, don't you worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Then he says, for all these things the Gentiles are seeking. Now the word Gentile there in the Greek is the Greek term ethne. It's where we get our term, it comes from the word ethnos, which is where we get the term ethnic or ethnicity. When Jesus says all these things the Gentiles are seeking, he's talking about the nations and the cultures of the world. All these things the cultures are seeking. The cultures of the world. And he says, but you, which means he's making a distinction between his disciples and the cultures of the world. Meaning the moment you come to faith in Jesus Christ, he separates you from the cultures of the world. You're still Korean, but he separates you from Korean culture. You're still in it, but you're not of it. You're still black, but you're in it, but not of it. You're still white. You're still Asian. You're still whatever you are. You're still a hipster. You're still a millennial, baby boomer, whatever you are. You're still that, but you're in it, but not of it anymore. It, it is not your prime. It is not the identifier of you anymore. Your identity is now found in your faith in Jesus Christ. He says, but you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as well. I, I'm sorry, I skipped a part in verse 32. He says, all these things the Gentiles are seeking and your father knows that you have need of these things. When he says all these things the Gentiles are seeking, he says, you're not supposed to think like the Gentiles. But he doesn't mean that those things are bad. He says, your father knows that you have need of those things. You seek first the kingdom because you have a father who knows what you have need of before you ask him, and your father is more anxious to give to you than you are to receive. He says, but you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. You know what's interesting to me is that Jesus, he called 12 disciples, right? There's two of them that we don't really talk about much. The first guy is Matthew, the tax collector. He's actually the guy who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. But the fact that he was a tax collector means that he was pro-Roman. It actually meant that he was kind of a traitor. He was a Jew collecting taxes on behalf of the Romans, and Jewish tax collectors were the most hated Jews in the kingdom. They were hated, why? Because they would change up your taxes. If you owed $500, they said that would be $750. And then you give them the 750, they pocket the 250, and they give Rome the 500, and that's how they made their money. And so tax collectors were rich. They were wealthy. And everybody knew that they were robbing the Jews. They were taking personal taxes. So Matthew was a very controversial disciple for Jesus to call. No rabbi in Israel would have called a tax collector to be his disciple. But then the second guy that Jesus calls is a guy named Simon the Zealot. Do you know who the Zealots were? In the intertestamental period between about 500 and the time of Christ, there were four different groups that emerged in Israel. The first were called the Pharisees. You see the Pharisees all throughout the New Testament. The second were called the Sadducees. You see the Sadducees in the New Testament. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives. They were like the Republicans. The Sadducees were the liberals. We'll call them the Democrats. <laughs> and the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were always at each other's throat. Interesting. Jesus actually was a Pharisee. He probably was discipled by one of the rabbis. And he definitely did discipleship the way the Pharisees did it. Except... The people he chose as his disciples were all rejects. Instead of choosing the best of the best, he said, I'll take the ones nobody else wants. The ones who don't think they're good enough to be my disciples. 
That's who I'll take. But there were two other groups. One of them was called the Essenes. And you know why you never see the Essenes? Because they weren't around. They were isolationists. They, would, they lived out in the desert by themselves. And they didn't talk to nobody. That's what holiness meant to the Essenes. Don't talk to nobody but us. That's not holiness. But the third group, or fourth group, they were called the Zealots. And the Zealots were the radical Jews. They were radical. They were like assassins. They would have been like modern-day suicide bombers. They were so anti-Roman, and their goal was to destroy the Roman occupation by any means necessary. They would plan assassinations. They were, they were hardcore. They were ruthless. They were Jewish religious gangsters. They were extremists. They were the fundamentalists of Israel. So Jesus, choosing his disciples, he says, Matthew, why don't you come follow me? I need a tax collector on my squad. <laughs> Simon. Yeah, you, the zealot. Why don't you come follow me? And now he's got these two who must have hated each other. Politically, they were as far apart as you possibly could be, further than the east is from the west. What could actually create middle ground between these two? Only one thing. They were called out of their political camps and into discipleship with Jesus Christ. Meaning, Prior to discipleship with Jesus, their political affiliations were their primary orientations. But when they came to faith in Jesus Christ, the primary became Jesus. Simon was still a zealot, but the primary was Jesus. Matthew was still a tax collector, but the primary was Jesus. And when Jesus is exalted above your political affiliation, it means that you have to come to a place where you stop seeing only the wickedness on the other side. Because, see, I talk to a lot of believers who are Democrat Christians in that order and who are Republican Christians in that order. If you are a Democrat Christian in that order, it means that you have first embraced the Democratic Party and its ideology and tried to integrate faith in Jesus Christ into that ideology. And so you take certain themes within that ideology that are concurrent with the Christian faith, and you say, we're about justice, and we're about liberation, and we're about equality and freedom, and that's what the Bible's all about as well. But when there's a clash between what you would believe as a Democrat and what you would believe as a Christian, which do you choose? That tells whose kingdom you're actually a part of. Which means, are you able to look at the ideology of your party and say, this stuff is great, but this stuff right here, it does not agree with Scripture. I'm going with what the Bible says. And are you even able to see it? Because some of us are so wrapped up in that ideology that we can't even see the wickedness on our own side. We don't think there is any wickedness on our side. And may I say that politics in America is the most convoluted and hypocritical sphere in our culture. I mean, just watch news outlets. And it happens on both sides. When Obama was president, you watched all these, you know, conservative news outlets pointing the finger at him. He is this and he is that and he does this and he does that and I'm embarrassed for our country and blah, blah, blah. And then Trump becomes president. He does the same things and they go, this is good. This is righteous. This is, yeah, this is great. This is awesome stuff. And you can see videos where it's the same thing, but when it was a Democrat in office, they attacked it. And when it was Republican in office, they praised it. And if you think the Democrats don't do the same thing, when there's a Republican in office, it's this and that. And that. But if there was a Democrat in office, let's just defend him. And we, we get caught up in that. I, I just watch it on Facebook. That's why I don't enter into political debates on Facebook. It goes nowhere. Because yeah. all you have are two individuals that are so wrapped up in what their own party, what their own political party believes and thinks, yeah. that all they can see is the wickedness on the other side. Yeah. And they don't realize that that's idolatry. Calvin said, 
that the human heart is an idol-making factory. Every day we make a new one. You just made another one right now. You don't even know it. (laughs) Are you able to exalt the kingdom of God above your politics, above your ideology? People tell me, Pastor, don't talk about politics. Really, that's a realm that God should stay out of, right? God can't speak to politics. So I don't like it when they talk politics in the church. All oh, right, because, yeah, God, he knows in heaven, right? Politics, human politics are off limits to me. <laughs> the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who dwell in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. The earth belongs to God. He reigns over everything. And matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 12, in the middle of it, there's this cry that comes from heaven that says, now have come the salvation and kingdom and glory of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of the brethren has cast down. He is, we overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. It says the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Make no mistake that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, which means he's going to take over human politics. Because that's what the kingdom of God is all about. On my Facebook wall, if you hit the about button on my page where it says politics, I I write, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. can't be a Republican, and I can't be a Democrat. Why? I'm a Christian, which means I see the good on the Republican side, and I celebrate that. And I see the good on the Democrat side, and I celebrate that. And I can't give in to the lie that both sides are completely evil. Because there's a component of human culture there that's neutral. But I also see the evil and the wickedness on both sides. So the side that I subscribe to is a side that has no wickedness. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That is the only side that I can totally and fully surrender to is the side that has no wickedness. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Joshua chapter 5 is one of the most powerful passages of scripture to me. I remember being in Jericho in 1995 and standing on the ruins of Jericho where they had excavated the wall that had fallen down. And as we're standing there, my friend came over to me and he opened up the Bible to Joshua chapter 5 and he read this passage. Joshua is standing outside of the walls of Jericho and he's trying to find a weak point in the wall. But he can't seem to find a weak point in the wall and he's thinking to himself, how are we going to get in there? And all of a sudden, standing before him is an angel with a drawn sword. He sees a man standing with a drawn sword. And he looks at the the angel and says, Are you for us or for our enemies? Are you on our side or are you on their side? And the angel's response, No. (laughs) No. That's not how it works. Joshua says, Are you on my side? The angel goes, No. Are you on my enemy's side? No. The question is not, is God on your side? The question is, are you on his? The angel says, no. As commander of the army of the Lord, I'm here. He says, I'm here because I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Translation, I'm on God's side. And the angel would say, now I'm asking you, Joshua, are you on our side or on our enemy's side? (laughs) Are you for the kingdom of God or are you building your own kingdom? Are you more caught up in a political earthly kingdom, a political earthly ideology, or are you caught up in the kingdom of heaven? Are you more focused on his kingdom coming or your kingdom coming? Are you more focused on on winning political battles on earth or seeing the kingdom of heaven come? And Joshua says, I'm on your team. (laughs) What do I need to do to get on your team? That's what Joshua says. What do I need to do to get on your team? But this is how he says it. What does my Lord command? The only question is, what does God want? This is the question that will keep you in the kingdom. Is at every place in your life in which a decision must be made, God, what do you want? 
What does my Lord command? God, what do you want? Because this is the essence of the kingdom of God, doing God's will. When Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the second clause explains the first. When he says your kingdom come, he says, let me tell you what that means. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When his will is done on earth as it is in heaven, his kingdom has come. And his kingdom comes in a micro, in just in, in a microcosm. Every time any one person on the earth says, what do you want, God? Do you know how powerful it is? To obey God even once. To know that this is what God requires. Do you realize how powerful obedience to God is? Do you know that every single time you obey God, the gates of hell are passed, are, are pressed back? Every time you obey God, the enemy gets defeated. Every time you obey God, it's like putting another nail in the coffin of the devil. Every time you obey God, the kingdom of hell has to move. Every time you obey God, every act of obedience to God destroys the kingdom of darkness. Do you know how powerful you are? This is why the answer that God gave Joshua says, you want to get in these walls? Yeah, how do I get in these walls? What I need you to do is I just need you to walk and worship. Here's what you're going to do, Joshua. First day, you're going to come out and you're going to walk and you're going to worship. Lord, I've got so much financial hardship in my life. How am I going to overcome? How are those walls of poverty going to fall around my life and my family? Here's what I need you to do, Joshua. You're going to go out, you're going to walk, and you're going to worship. I know, but how am I going to get those walls to fall? I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to walk, and you're going to worship. You're going to walk. I know, but God, but, but you've got to tell me what to do. Are you going to give me a battering ram to knock down the walls? Nope. I'm going to give you a voice to worship. Are you going to give me a financial strategy to overcome poverty? Nope. I'm going to give you a mouth to worship. You're going to walk, and as you walk, you're going to worship. All God needed to give him was a simple act of obedience. One simple act of obedience to God has the power to destroy anything that the enemy seeks to do in your life. One simple act of obedience, but here's the corollary. One simple act of disobedience to God gives the enemy permission to bring an increment of death into your life. Obedience, even the smallest act of obedience. Why? This is when you go all the way back to the creation event and God says, light be. And light went, okay, here I am. And God said, that's good. Why is it good? Because God spoke and there was obedience. And then he forms the man out of the dust of the ground and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Man becomes a living soul, takes a rib out of his side and makes the woman out of it, brings them together, puts them in the Garden of Eden, and he says, come here, you two. Here's what I want you to know. See this tree in the center of the garden? You can eat every other tree in the garden, but don't eat from this tree. Why, God? That don't make no sense. It don't have to make sense. You don't have to understand it. In our adolescence, we demand from God an understanding and an explanation. Why should I obey that? Doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Why? That's adolescent, right? That's what I used to do when I was a kid. I was like, well, why, Mom? How come I can't do that? Say, because I said so. Because if you do it, I will slap you so hard, you will have six visions, five dreams, and four revelations. That's why. Because if you do it, I will slap you straight through the millennium and into the great, straight through the great tribulation and into the millennium. That's why. <laughs> I will lay hands on you suddenly. That's why. <laughs> but I know, Mom, but why? Ask me one more time, why? At, try me. Ask me one more time and see if I won't snatch them lungs right out of your chest. <laughs> Used to make me so mad. Because she said, obey, but didn't tell me why. The older I grew, the more wisdom I obtained. And the more wisdom I've obtained in my life, the more I'm able to look back and go, oh, that's why. That's why. Oh, that's why mom told me not to do that. Oh, that's why mom used to say, oh, that's, oh. 
I didn't understand. And then I go back and say, Mom, I'm so sorry. I didn't get it. I didn't understand. I thought you were just being mean. I thought you were just being unreasonable. I thought you were just throwing stuff out. Just listen to what God says. I, you know what I think? I don't think there was anything special about that tree in the garden. I think it was just like every other tree in the garden. The only thing that made it different is God said, don't eat from it. This tree right here, don't touch it. Do you know why? God had to give them an opportunity for obedience. Do you realize that when God gives you an opportunity for obedience, He is putting within your grasp the power to destroy every power of hell that comes in? Literally, God just takes a random tree, uh, this one, don't eat from this tree, ever. (laughs) What is it about the tree? Nothing. So then why don't you want me to eat? Because I said so. You don't understand. I'm not being unreasonable. I just gave you power. I just gave you authority. I just made you strong. Because in order for God to give us his kingdom, all he needs to do is give us an opportunity to obey. How about tithing? God says, bring the tithe into the storehouse. Why? Why has it got to be 10%? How come? How, that's so random. Why not 9%, 8%? How about 6%, 3%? I don't want to be legalistic. I don't want to be religious. How about I just give when I feel it? You don't realize that that idolatry of feeling, I give when I feel. I just want to, give, just want to be free to give when I feel. Led to give. I don't want to be locked into. God says, no, 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 no. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. My wife did a study of Malachi this week, and she's actually throwing that into her sermon on the Emeryville side about a kingdom family. And God says through Malachi, he says, you're bringing me your lame and blind animals? Take those to your governor. See what he says. Can you imagine? These people are going to the temple to make sacrifices to God, and they went into their flock, and they found the most diseased animal they possibly could find, limping on, you know, walking on three legs. It's like, here's the sacrifice, God. Blind, you know, just blind sheep just walking around. And God says, take that, to your, take that to your governor. You won't even offer that to your own human, but you offer it to me? You're under a curse. All of you are under a curse, God said. And said, so, well, why are we under a curse? Because of the tithe and the offering. Try me in this. Try me. God says, try me. And he said it in two ways. Don't bring me the tithe. Watch me blow away all of your earnings. Watch me curse the work of your hands. He goes, but try me. You bring the tithe into the storehouse and see if I don't open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you that you don't have room. Why, God? Because I said so. You thought that when I asked for the tithe, I was trying to take something from you. I'm not trying to take something from you. I'm trying to give something to you. But in order to give something to you, i got to give you an opportunity for obedience. At the end of the day, the culture of heaven is simply unquestioned obedience to the will of God. I don't need to know why. You know, there's levels to the speaking voice of God. There's different ways in which God speaks. We must understand those levels and and how there's actually a hierarchy to the speaking voice of God. At the foundation of that hierarchy are the words of Scripture. The Bible is our rod, rule, and measuring stick. It's called our canon, which means that everything else that we think God says to us must be judged according to Scripture. This is what protects us from falling into error because somebody might wake up tomorrow and say, God said this to me. You think, but that's, that's not, that contradicts what Scripture says. If it contradicts what Scripture says, throw it out. It's not the voice of God. So there's Scripture. But then there's also the speaking voice of God. And one of the ways God speaks to us is by giving us an impression. You just feel it in your heart. And there's even a range within the impressions that God gives us. Sometimes the impression is so strong that you know it's God, and you just have to move immediately. I was driving uh, late at night several years ago. I was on the 880 freeway. I was heading to Oakland. I was coming from the the, uh, Union City, Fremont area on the 880, 2 o'clock in the morning or later. Nobody was on the freeway. It's like the freeway was empty. It was like the whole freeway was cleared out just for me. So I'm in the fast lane. I'm just flying. I'm just just going, you know, I got, I'm lead-footed that night. I'm probably going 80, 85 miles an hour, something like that. Don't judge me. I know what you're thinking. You're supposed to be a pastor, but you're speeding. Yeah, that's right. I was speeding. 
I know that's not obedience. God's still sanctifying me in certain areas. I'm just right with you. I'm, I'm still being sanctified. I'm being, still being saved. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the fast lane. I'm flying. And all of a sudden, I get this distinct impression. Get over one lane. And the impression hit me so hard that I immediately put on my blinkers and moved over a lane. But the moment I moved over a lane, I whizzed past a car that was stopped in the fast lane with no lights on, and it was dead. I would have plowed right into the back of that thing. That impression from God. What if I would have said, why, God? I'm the only one out here. Over a lane, that doesn't make any sense, God. Can you tell me why? You know how much stuff you plow right into the back of in life because you spent you wasted time asking God why? You wasted time asking the all-wise God. The omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, immutable, unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving God. And you spent so much time asking Him why, and you delayed your obedience because of your lack of understanding, and you don't realize that you have exalted your own understanding above the kingdom of God. And that is called idolatry. Which means delayed obedience actually is demon worship. Because you have sacrificed your obedience to God on the altar of self which is an invitation to a demonic being to say, thank you for that sacrifice. I'll receive it. And you've brought the culture of hell into the earth. Because sometimes we don't say no God, we just say not yet God. And you don't realize that not yet is just a, a polite no. I'm not ready yet. It's a polite no. It's no less idolatrous. What level of obedience have you been postponing? What level of obedience have you been procrastinating on? In what area of your life have you been telling God, yeah, I know you want me to do that, and I will do it, but not yet. I'm not yet ready. What level of obedience have you postponed until you get good and ready? In that very place, you have invited the culture of hell. And you've justified it in your heart by saying, it's only temporary. Hell, you can hang out here in my house for a few weeks. Hell becomes that visitor that you let into your house and then he won't leave. You try to put him out. That's the problem. There are certain people you do not invite into your house. They will not leave. And Satan is one of those individuals. <laughs> your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know what our deepest desire here is at Living Hope? Our mission statement, we, our vision statement, we state it like this, God truly among us. But do you know what that means? God truly among us. you know why we don't say it very much? Because it might become a slogan. And once it becomes a slogan, it'll lose its power. It won't mean anything. We'll just assume, yeah, God truly among us. Yeah, God is truly among us. And then it's no longer a vision. It's just a slogan that we throw around. If we had a slogan, do you know what our slogan would be? There is no brokenness that cannot be mended in God's presence. That's our slogan. We've actually been saying that since 2004, when we, when we first started. There is no brokenness that cannot be mended in God's presence. Do you know what that means? That means that our vision, our mission, our desire, our greatest value is that when you come into this place, you would meet God. And you would walk away saying, God is truly among them. But you would say that after having met with God and met with Him so powerfully that it changed your life. You walk away transformed, not because you've conformed to some set of religious beliefs and rules, but that you've actually found the treasure. Meeting God is finding the treasure. Like when you actually encounter God, like the living presence of God, 
You found the treasure, my friend. If you actually get a glimpse of Jesus, you'll give your whole life for one more glimpse. If I could just see him one more time, even if just for a second, it'd be worth my whole life. But do you know what keeps us out of the manifest presence of God? What keeps us from actually encountering God in his fullness? Lingering long in the place of idolatry. And we have to come after idolatry. Because there's no other way to bring you into a living encounter with the living God than to lead you to the recognition, God, I put this, whatever this is, I put it ahead of you. I've put it ahead of you. Whether it's I've put myself and my desires and my ambitions and my agenda ahead of you. I've put my desire for community ahead of you. My preconceptions of what a community is supposed to be and how it's supposed to function, I've put it ahead of you. I put my culture ahead of you. The right to identify with this group or that group, I put that ahead of you. Whatever it is, anything that you've put ahead of God is idolatry. And the moment God reveals it, this is, this is what's, what's so crazy. When God reveals our idolatries, it's a devastating moment. What we're not able to see in that moment is it's actually a glorious moment. It's the best moment ever. You will look back on it and go, God, thank you so, wow. That was the most loving thing you could have done was to show me that level of idolatry in my life. Why? Because when God seeks to cleanse you of your idolatries, what he's actually doing is preparing you for a face-to-face with him. Today God's come to prepare us for a face-to-face with him. And I feel like I'm talking around the culture thing. It's it's so hard to do a sermon on culture because there's so much that can be said about it. And I always feel like I'm talking around it and and I get sidetracked and pulled into other things. I rewrote this sermon 20 times in the last couple of weeks. But if we focus our minds and hearts on the culture of heaven, then what our hearts begin to yearn for is whatever's in heaven. And what is in heaven? Jesus gives us an indication in John chapter 10, verse 10, when he says, The thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's the culture of hell. And the culture of hell masquerades as a culture of joy. It's about fun. One of my friends used to tell me, I want to go to hell. I say, why? He said, because that's where all the cool people are going to be. We're going to be partying down there. Hey. Where the bud at? This was back in the 90s when that that meant where's the marijuana? (laughs) Hell masquerades as a culture of joy. But it's actually a culture of death. I watched this documentary recently about these pickpockets in South Africa. And do you know what they do in Johannesburg? They befriend you. You're walking down the street. They go, hey, what's going on, my man? How you doing? They hug you, and they smile at you, and they look in your eyes, and they say, hey, is it your first time here in Johannesburg? And they talk to you, and they get to know you. And then and you're thinking, wow, this is so cool. The people are so friendly. And then you walk away, and you go, my cell phone's gone. My wallet's gone. The key to my apartment, my, my hotel is gone. I've, oh, man, they, my, my camera's gone. You walk away. You don't realize they've robbed you until after it's over. But they masqueraded as a culture of joy. They masqueraded as hospitality. But what's underneath it is, a desire to steal and to kill and to destroy. And don't you realize that's what the kingdom darkness of darkness does? Hey, what's going on? There's a party over here. Hey, what's going on? Come on, let's get some of this. Hey, what's going on? And then you walk away and you go, my joy is gone and my peace is gone and my righteousness is gone and my consciousness is, is seared with the hot iron and, and I've lost so many years of my life. Why? Because the culture of hell has one agenda to steal from you and to kill you and to destroy your life and to destroy your family. And when you linger long in the place of idolatry, you're lingering in the presence of the one who who desires more than anything to destroy you and to kill you and to steal from you. 
lingering long in the presence of the Lord is lingering long in the presence of one who has no other desire and no other agenda than to give you life, to give you peace, to give you joy. He said through the prophet Isaiah, my ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. and My arm is not shortened that it cannot save. But your sins have separated you from God. He said in another place, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the unrighteous forsake his way. Let the sinner forsake his thoughts. And let him turn to the Lord who gives mercy and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Do you know what repentance is? In our sin, we run away from the loving arms of God. In our repentance, we turn and run back into his arms. Repentance is the removal of that which would separate you from the lavish love of God. And if you feel that you have been living outside of the lavish love of God, maybe you've got something that you need to repent of. Maybe you've allowed something in your heart and mind to linger in a place that has kept you separated. Nothing can stop God from loving you. Sin does not stop God from loving you. It stops you from receiving His love. God will love you even if you go to hell. Even, your, even the worst sin does not stop God from loving you. But even the smallest sin can stop you from receiving His love if you linger in it and it remains unrepented of. And repentance, it's just a moment. It's just a moment and when you wake up and realize, I'm going back. I will arise and return to my Father. In that moment, I realize I've set this thing above His kingdom. I'm going I'm to put it back in its place. I'm going to put the kingdom back in its place. I'm going to prioritize His kingdom above all things. I'm coming back to His will. That's all it takes is that moment. That moment. And in that moment, the gates of heaven begin to open. Here on earth. And you're welcomed back into the loving arms of a father who's been standing on his porch waiting for you every day. Bow your heads and let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray you settle in upon every heart and upon every soul today in the name of Jesus. Speak to each heart and soul beyond my ability to communicate. Holy Spirit, you're the communicator. You're the preacher. I pray for the pricking of hearts today. That by the word of the Lord, we would be cut to the heart. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God, you would confront our idolatry. And that we would make a decision today to take away our foreign gods, our cultural gods, our political gods, our ideological gods. To take away our desire to mold you into the image of our cultural ideology. Our culture first mentality. That we would make a decision. The kingdom of God reigns over all. And Lord, I'm following you. Even if you lead me out of my ideology, I'm following you. Even if you lead me out of my political party, I'm following you. Even if you lead me out of things that I value, I want what you know. I want what you believe. I want what you value. I want what's normal to you. I want what you do. I want your culture. The culture of heaven. 
I receive not only the knowledge of the Lordship of Jesus, but the integrated pattern of knowledge and beliefs and values and norms and behaviors that are characteristic of heaven. I want heaven in my heart, in my heart as it is in heaven, in my life as it is in heaven. Holy Spirit, come and set us free right now in the name of Jesus.